the top 1% in each country consume uh, at least their, their footprint is as big as the bottom 66%. Um, and so we can't solve the environmental crisis or move towards sustainability unless we also solve the inequality crisis. Um, the two go together. Uh, we can't treat them as different things. Um, and as you say, um, it, the, that capitalism is behind them both. The old world is ending. And we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the systemic problems in our world. And the real solutions we have today. To transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse. To create an abundantly advanced collaborative society. That sustains all life. You may think it's an impossible dream. But the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Matt Holton, Amanda Smith, and Zachary Marlowe. And together, we can move past this economic absurdity and come together to actualize our collective potential to create something completely new. We are Mindless Society. Inequality is one of the issues we deal with most on this program and in this world. It's the really the scourge of our time. We have discussed it in terms of a pandemic, a crisis, and something that is continually uh, driving apart society, literally. So today we have an extremely special guest, someone I would consider one of the great experts on this subject, someone who has studied it backwards and forwards, dissected it inside and out, the great Richard Wilkinson and friend of the show, Arjun Jama of World Beyond Capitalism and the Zeitgeist Movement. So Arjun has a little... Uh, little statement prepared and then we're going to toss it to Richard and and uh, explore perhaps the singular one of the single most important issues of our time absolutely yeah um, yeah like I said I'm very excited to be here um, I read uh, mr. Wilkinson's work way back in the day and yeah I'm very inspired um, so yeah just give a little briefer on him uh, Richard Wilkinson is a British social epidemiologist, author, advocate, and political activist. He's a professor emeritus of social epidemiology at the University of Nottingham. He's also honorary professor of epidemiology and public health at University College of London. In 2009, Richard co-founded the Equality Trust and was awarded a 2013 Silver Rose Award for championing equality and the 2014 Charles Cully Memorial Medal by the Irish Cancer Society. He's best known for his work with Kate Pickett called The Spirit Level, first published in 2009, which argues that societies with more equal distribution of incomes have better health, fewer social problems such as violence, drug abuse, teenage births, mental illness, obesity, and others, and are more cohesive than ones in which the gap between the rich and poor is greater. So uh, Professor Wilkinson and his colleague Kate Pickett have played a major role in the research that helps us arrive at the conclusion that social and economic inequality are corrosive to our health and the reality of what we have today, which is an ever-growing gap in income inequality in the world, is should be considered a serious public health threat that needs to be addressed. Uh, so with that said, I would like to um, you know, first say thank you so much for being on the show today and um, um, yeah, and helping us all arrive at better conclusions regarding the health of society. And I wanted to ask you, um, you know, in this interview, just uh, 
explain to us what is inequality and what forms of inequality are, are acceptable and which forms of inequality are dangerous and harmful to people? I think these uh, flattering build-ups like you've just given to introduce me actually increase uh, inequality. <laughs> um, I start to wonder, what, who on earth are they talking about? <laughs> it sounds quite formidable and can't be me. <laughs> anyway. No need to be humble, sir. Uh, you... Um, you just called him sir yeah rich richard this is uh you make yourself at home kick your shoes off this you're we're we're all equal here we all have the same size little square right. in this computer so uh, actually my on my screen my square is smaller than yours <laughs> um, mm. you asked me about uh, inequality we what we did um this is some years ago, and actually we've written other books since then. When I say we, I mean Kate Pickett and I. She's now my wife um, and is also a social epidemiologist. Um, we looked at income differences in different countries. Um, they, they differ by quite a lot. I mean, countries like the USA and Britain are more unequal much more unequal than the Scandinavian countries. Um, and uh, so although people, I suppose, since the Fer French Revolution have always thought of inequality as, as uh, corrosive, socially corrosive and divisive, um, other people have disagreed with them. Um, but now we've got the data where we can look and see how much difference inequality makes. And what we see is... Uh, actually, that it makes uh, health, um, both physical and mental health, worse um, in our societies. And uh, uh, it also leads to more violence. Um, if you look at uh, um, homicide rates um, between countries, you find uh, much higher in countries like the USA. Um, if you look at uh, imprisonment, the proportion of the population in prison, or if you look at measures of the strength of community life, uh, whether people know their neighbours or join in community life, whether people trust each other or not, uh, those things too uh, are worse in more unequal countries. Uh, and it's, it's a striking picture because the differences in how well more and less equal countries do very large. There are studies which uh, show that differences in homicide rates in the rich developed countries are 10 times as high in some countries as others. Um, similarly for uh, imprisonment, um, differences in life expectancy are smaller. Um, but uh, we're talking about really major differences. And if you, if you look at the USA, USA has the highest obesity rates. We also found they were related to inequality. Uh, as I said, the highest imprisonment, the highest homicide rates, uh, about the, amongst the lowest life expectancy amongst rich developed countries. Um, high teenage births, I don't know what else, high drug uh, um, use. Uh, and you then look at a country like one of the more equal Scandinavian countries, say Norway, Sweden, Belgium, Denmark, countries like that, and all those things are much lower. Um, they're all problems which 
we know are worst in the poorest areas of our society. I mean, if you, they have what we call social gradients. So if you look at um, life expectancy, it's lowest in the poorest areas. If you look at kids' maths and reading scores, educational performance, it's lowest in the poorest areas. Violence is highest. All these things uh, have that pattern across our societies. And it's those problems that big income differences make worse amongst not just the poor, but all of us, almost all of us. We find at least 90% of the population would do better in those terms if they lived in a more equal country. It's a striking picture. So I want to pick up on something there and sort of define what we're talking about when we're talking about inequality, because this isn't just poverty. It isn't just countries where poverty is greater. It is the difference, the relational difference between the rich and the poor. So it's the, the way that how much society is stretched apart, how divided we are in terms of who has access to what. Uh, I just spent a lot of time in Colombia and there's a lot of poverty there, but there isn't in many towns and, and cities a, a glaring obvious difference between the amount of wealth that people have where it's in your face that there's people living in slums and there's people living in high rises and it's that which the great james gilligan you know uh who we interviewed as well highlighted is what forms this violence in society which which makes people crazy you know i, I was just in a in I'm traveling around Europe right now, and it's clear that the inequality is greater. In a city like Berlin, there there literally isn't a difference in the height of the buildings. You know, a lot of these little cute little towns in the countryside, everything is literally horizontally the same level. And so I, I'm curious, like, what is it in the relationship between there being great wealth and being great poverty that ultimately pulls us all down. There's now so much research which actually tells us what's going on behind the inequality figures. And uh, it's now very clear that inequality, more inequality, increases those feelings of superiority and inferiority, dominance and subordination. It makes class and status more important. It strengthens the grip of class and status on us. Um, and makes us, in societies where status is very important, we all worry more about what other people think of us, how we're judged by other people. We get more twitchy and neurotic about it. Um, uh, uh, it. It increases that idea that some people are worth so much more than others. Um, and with that goes the insecurity about what do other people think of me? Um, do they think I'm a failure, useless, um, uh, think I've never done anything uh, worthwhile, uh, I'm a scrounger, or do they, do they look up to me? And you mentioned James Gilligan and uh, uh, the violence, and he was a, a prison psychiatrist for many years, spent a lot of time talking to really violent people, and he says he'd never met anyone uh, and, and, and any case of violence which was not triggered by people feeling looked down on, disrespected, humiliated, loss of face. And of course, if you live in a world where so much depends on status, um, you're going to get people feeling very sensitive to, uh, are you disrespecting them, looking at me the wrong way, all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you made some great points. I was going to mention James Gilligan and his work and uh, how, yes, the feeling of like being disrespected. You know, he always said, hey, the prisoners always would say the same thing. So-and-so dissed me. That's why I got mad and I, you know, uh, did this to him or did that to her. And uh, I read it. I read uh, Mr. Um, Gilligan's books as well, Violence and Preventing Violence. And he had actually a three step plan on how to reduce violence is like primary prevention, secondary and then tertiary. But he said the first step we have to do, we have to take in order to make sure that we ensure that we have less violent societies in general is to reduce the income gap between the rich and poor. So he was like, you know, the most important thing we can do to make sure that we reduce violence in society is reduce the income gap, which right away automatically coincides with people feeling more humanized, more respected, because obviously inequality really harms our, like you said, our sense of well-being in terms of how we perceive things, you know, how, how we feel towards others. And um, so the first step is, yes, you know, reduce inequality. If people are more prone to violence, the second step is to is to talk with them, show them compassion, understanding, show them respect, as opposed to our criminal system, which is actually a criminal system, which puts people in cages and does the exact opposite to them, dehumanizes them, dis- disrespects mm-hmm. them, treats them like they're garbage. And, and how's that going to make anything better? And um, and the third step is if the person is really beyond help on that level, then we have to take like psychotherapist avenues and different kind of treatments to help them overcome their you know neurotic uh, issues. But like, you know, it's very incredibly important that your work crosses uh, crosses with uh, Mr. Gilligan's work in that inequality is the key. Equality is the key towards healthier societies and inequality. If you want to create a, a neurotic, obsessed, crazy, violent society, well, just, you know, make them unequal. And there you have it. The recipe for disaster. Yes, I, I very much agree with that. And I, I met him and uh, I got quite a lot of uh, important leads from him. Uh, helped me think about these issues. Um, but... And I suppose most people think of inequality as only mattering if it creates terrible poverty. But actually, I often say in in talks that I want people to think of inequality as a social relationship. It puts us all in this sort of hierarchy, one above the other, uh, or one below the other. Um, And we tend to look on that hierarchy as if it was from best to the to worst, which of course is why low status hurts. Uh, and it's 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 the psychological effects, the psychosocial effects uh, that are most powerful. And I think people haven't got used to thinking of inequality as having powerful psycho uh, psychosocial effects. Um, uh, but it's it's that that I think matters most. Um, I sometimes uh, mention a study, uh, an extraordinarily interesting study, um, of poverty in different countries, both rich countries and poorer countries like um, India and, and China, but also richer ones like um, Norway and, and Britain. And, of course, poverty means quite different things in those worlds. Um, in some, it means living in a, uh, a shack with an earth floor and no sanitation at all. In others, uh, in the rich countries, it might li- mean living in a, a two-bedroom apartment with most of the modern electronics and so on. Um, uh, 
And yet when people were interviewed about their experience of poverty, they talked so much about being devalued, looked down on, um, humiliated, uh, all those kinds of things, um, uh, and it having an effect on how they saw themselves, um, that people hated themselves for being poor, um, and even within the family, um, husbands would be disrespected by their wives, children wouldn't have any, you know, they'd be ashamed of their parents. Um, uh, and it shows you that even in such very different circumstances where poverty means such very different things materially, um, in both cases, rich and poor countries, what really gets to people is feeling they're at the bottom of the hierarchy, that they're disrespected, looked down on, regarded as failures. So don't slip into thinking it's just a matter of material standards and that's what affects people's health. It's the chronic stress from coming, from worrying about how you're seen and judged, which we know um, affects uh, physical and mental health. I think your, your work is so powerful because it, it is this sort of unifying thread that pulls together so many issues that on their own seem unsolvable or seem just crazy, like school shootings and suicides and spousal abuse and obesity and all of these problems that if we were trying to solve them all individually, I think we'd go crazy. We'd need a million you know, different NGOs and it would take so much effort and it would almost even seem hopeless that like we're just doomed because like society is so crazy. But it, this the singular thing that, that draws them all together, this rope that connects them all, this, this noose that really draws all these things together is this unequalness, this inequality, this, this difference, this, this inherent sort of tension between peoples. And so for me, reading your work, listening to you speak, you know, studying the consensus on this, it really is a bombshell. And it really is something that people need to understand that it gives us, even, even as it's a, a hard thing to look at, it's hard to concern ourselves with these problems. But if we see that all of these problems have this one unifying thing in common, or this root so source, this root cause, if we address that root cause, then we, we hit all of these other cascading problems. Yes, I agree. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that uh, governments still, insofar as they tackle any of these different problems at all, they tackle them as if they were completely unrelated to each other. Um, and so their policies for dealing with violence are totally different from their policies of dealing with any of these other things. They don't recognize that just as they all have that same pattern of social gradients being worst in the poorest areas, they all have this, the pattern of being worst in more unequal countries. And it's that level you've got to act. Yeah, I was actually going to add on that. Um, clearly, as someone who is a uh, public health researcher like yourself, I'm sure uh, you agree that a lot of the things that come down to changing our health and our views and overall the the, the stability of society doesn't really come down so much to individual choices that people make, but 
more so on policy and structural changes to our society, right? So, you know, I'm sure you respect systems thinking and how we have to look at the interrelated dynamics and relationships within a society and see how different policies or different structural adjustments to that society can actually uh, drastically change and alter the relationships between the people in that society and institutions and establishments that support that society. So, um, you know, yes. here as, as an activist, as a, yeah, sorry, as a sustainability advocate, I pretty much, I've come to my conclusion that I think um, free market capitalism not only requires inequality and it perpetuates it, uh, no matter what iteration you look at, um, but that it's a, it's a very rigid system that does not like change. It does not like change. It likes keeping things the same way. And although the Scandinavian nations have far better outcomes in their health and their people's well-being and lower rates of depression and lower obesity and l less violence, um, they still are, are having problems that are commonplace throughout the world because of the fact that we live in a society, really, a, a market economy that celebrates and tries to exploit scarcity and it perpetuates competition among people. You know, um, yeah, so, and, and um, so, you know, I would like to run that back to you. Give well, us your thoughts on that. You're an environmental campaigner. And uh, one of the things inequality does, uh, because everyone's so bothered about how they appear to others, we all uh, consume more status goods. Um, uh, and we replace things, uh, you know, if you've got some, well, people buy more clothing with designer labels and spend more money on flashy looking cars um, and all that kind of thing in order to look good in front of other people. Uh, so it intensifies consumerism and consumerism is is probably the biggest obstacle to moving towards sustainability um, but there's another very important link between uh, dealing with the environmental crisis and uh, inequality and that is the you know there was a recent report from oxfam and i i think i've got this figure right uh, the top one percent in each country consume uh, at least their, their footprint is as big as the bottom 66%. Um, and so we can't solve the environmental crisis or move towards sustainability unless we also solve the inequality crisis. Um, the two go together. Uh, we can't treat them as different things. Um, and as you say, um, it, the, that capitalism is behind them both. Um, I'm actually working on something now to uh, thinking about, well, and I, of course, it's common amongst environmentalists to campaign to move government thinking away from trying to promote economic growth and towards uh, promoting well-being. And yet my fear is because everyone wants more money and every company wants to sell more and get bigger profits, that even if governments don't pursue growth, uh, those that desire to have more, uh, to be richer, to sell more, uh, will go on driving growth. Uh, and we have to deal with uh, whatever it is behind those tendencies. Um, uh, that that's uh, that's in, in the, if you like the 
capitalism is, is at the most funda fundamental level to do with the market, to do with the place of money in our society, uh, closely linked to these worries we have about status and how we're seen and judged by others. Yeah, I just want to say one thing. Uh, you made some great points. Um, and yes, like policy is extremely important. And I would argue that, I mean, the whole world is right now capitalist. It runs off of these, the main principles of private property, competition and growth and labor, you know, labor uh, creating uh, jobs. And, um, you know, capitalism's influence is really the main problem in my view. Like, scan, scan, why are Scandinavian nations more sustainable in their outlooks and, and their behaviors? Well, because they're less, I would say, less capitalistic or less fundamentalistic uh, in their orientation of capitalism. Whereas, like, a place like the United States is, like, behaves through what's called the will of the market. Deregulation, um, less government involvement. I mean, the, the entire argument in the United States for decades has been the same silly argument. Less government, more government. Less government, it's just they, they don't seem to be able to move beyond that. And and, and like, I, I would argue, like you said in your book, you, you have a, some incredible charts in your book, by the way, some graphs that I looked at. Social mobility and the chance for change is less available in more unequal societies. And like, that is why it's like, I, I tell my friends all the time, I don't have much faith in the U.S. political system because it is so rigid and it's so it's so stagnant. Um, they don't they don't encourage change, and if there's any change, it's so minor, it's so irrelevant that it doesn't really address the overall structural uh, dynamics of how society functions. So um, yeah, I, I would say that yes, you know, um, you know, the more we move away from fundamentalist, fanatical, um, free market thinking. Uh, the better society will be and the more chance for social mobility, like you mentioned in a, in a graph in your book, how more equal societies actually provide more opportunity for upward mobility of the poor. So the whole thing, uh, you know, you said a very famous statement in one of your TED Talks. You said, uh, if Americans want to live the actual, if, if Americans actually want to live the American dream, they should move to Denmark. <laughs> you know, and the whole crowd, the whole crowd was, was cheering for that because you made some, you know, <laughs> please elaborate on that if you and we'll go to you, Zach, next. That Sorry. was Kate's joke. But Zach, you had something to say. Well, yeah, I wanted to say that that inequality um, isn't just a, a quality of income. It's it's a power inequality. And I think that capitalism is a way of sort of making it so that people who have capital have power. The more money you have, the more power over the structure of reality, the more you can change people's beliefs with uh, advertisements and media, you know, the more you can control what people think is normal. And the more you can control elections and by politicians and media. And, you know, ba basically it's this inequality of power that is increasing so rapidly. I mean, I, I read that 70% of countries around the world, inequality is increasing. So the insanity index is going up across the board and yes. it, we're getting further and further from the ability of the people to be able to claw that power back with labor unions, with any kind of mechanisms in, that have worked in the past to regain power to the bottom. So I'm curious what you think, um, how can we address that power political, that any that imbalance of power? I, I would love for us to get into in a few minutes sort of flipping to the other side of this and exploring sort of solutions and alternatives and and out system solutions and and all of that good stuff but uh yeah i'm, I'm really curious how, how do you um how do you conce conceptualize this sort of way in which this power imbalance and income inequality are really one and the same thing 
Yes, I do think it's it's one and the same thing. I, I think the importance of status and to understand the effects of inequality, I often say uh, you have to understand monkey hierarchies and the dominance behavior and the ranking systems of monkeys. Um, because I think it comes from our evolved sensitivity uh, to inequality and hierarchy um, uh, is basically the same as, uh, as you see in, in monkeys. And I, I often think what and I sometimes say uh, that a more unequal society is a very steep social pyramid like that and a more equal society is a flatter social pyramid um, and which it is changes the nature of social relationships but you see uh, a monkey dominance hierarchy is a bullying hierarchy you've got the strongest at the top and the weakest at the bottom and if there's any doubt about who is dominant over who uh, there's some sort of physical uh, test of strength um, and so uh, I think that uh, and people sometimes say, look, they're quite different things. You've got power, you've got status, you've got uh, uh, income and so on. And I say, no, they're all the same things. The monkeys at the top uh, get most because they're strongest. They have first go at the food. They have um, they monopolize access to the, the dominant males, monopolize access to the females. Uh, and, and people who study, for instance, baboons like um, Robert Sapolsky uh, shows how a dominant baboon will move, will get rid of any subordinate that's in its way. So if a subordinate has found a, a nice bit of shade under a tree uh, to, to lie in in the heat of the day, the dominant will push them out and take it over. Uh, and that's power. The access to the resources um, is the material inequality between us. The rich have more of everything. Uh, and then the status is that in the monkeys, among the monkeys, it's very important for the subordinates to know who is stronger, who's above them, and keep out of the way, because they'll get beaten up if they get in the way. And interestingly, there are studies in, for instance, uh, civil servants working in London offices that show that um, <coughs> uh, uh, um, a hormone called fibrinogen that clots the blood. Um, if you get wounded, of course, you want your blood to clot fast. And the lower your status in the office hierarchy, the higher your fibrinogen levels are. It's as if um, our blood is, is reacting to uh, a threat of the dominance, as if they were going to bite us or whatever. And of course, low status monkeys do have lots of bite marks uh, and so on. They get a really hard time. It is, a, as I said, a bullying hierarchy. And so uh, status, power and, and wealth or access to resources all go together. They're not separate things. They're intimately related. Uh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, like just the, the example you gave is perfectly uh, similar to our society, as our human society, how, you know, in a very unequal society like the United States or, the, or England, um, if corporations view some lower, you know, upstart trying to mess up with the political system, they'll use their power and their leverage 
to publish a bunch of false data about them and just character assassination and just remove them from the political scene, just like how what happened in the United States. I mean, Bernie Sanders, not even that radical, what he was saying, but look what they did. Look what the Democratic Party did to sabotage and destroy his campaign and remove him from, from a position of influence and gave 225 times more coverage to some clown like Donald Trump who just sits there and says the most nonsense, you know, sensationalist crap that really like, you know, the media really helped in his election, you know, and helping his campaign. So yeah. like perfect example to what you said, you know, whatever fits the social schema of the time, which is, you know, reinforcing hierarchy, reinforcing competition and domination hierarchies, that's going to be favored. And anybody, any upstart wants to come in there, any low level baboon wants to come in there and say, hey, this is not right how things are happening. I want a more fair distribution. I want more equality and, yeah. and justice among our people. They'll get bullied and beat up by the, the dominant um yeah. My comparisons with the monkey hierarchies, um, I mean it very seriously. We always, when studying health inequalities, the big class differences in health between rich and poor, uh, we all we classified people, you know, in big surveys by, I don't know, education or income or um, housing ownership or something like that, and. Uh, uh, we always thought that the real causes of the health inequalities were the dif material differences between the classes. Uh, but increasingly, when we got to know the work of people studying um, baboons or macaques, um, uh, we found that the effects of hierarchy amongst those animals were very similar to the effects of hierarchy that we were seeing in human populations. And that uh, it wasn't simply the material things that lay behind our classification of people into status hierarchy. It was where you are in the status hierarchy itself. Uh, the status differences themselves are damaging. Yeah, I want to pick up on something there. Uh, and a question that I, I wanted to ask you earlier, if I can kind of weave this into a, a question slash rant, which is my specialty, <laughs> is is like the birth of, of inequality, which is the question at the heart of David Graeber and uh, David Wengrow's last book, The Dawn of Everything, which explores all of these societies in which maybe you could say there's some sort of gradation in society where there's some kind of leadership structure or some people have a little more than others. But overall, many times throughout human history, and I would even say through the, the length of human history, this has been the most sustainable, most, most effective shape to put society into is a more flat and horizontal structure where people are not vastly unequal or people who like my indigenous friends who, you know, they take great pride in their equality, that they are equal, that they see mm -hmm. each other as each other instead of being against each other, instead of fighting in society, instead of this, this narcissistic, childish, this, this, this petty desire to be above other people, yeah. to define your success in how much you can bully and dominate other people instead of how you're all doing. And I, I was going to kind of... Um, go off into a tangent about anarchism and horizontal organization. And I want to kind of ask you other questions about um, the chicken and the egg of hierarchy and inequality, but I think you kind of answered that. Um, I'm, I'm interested in what are structures and movements and mechanisms that increase equality? And mm, hang on, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm drowning in questions right now. First, can maybe we define what is equality 
And is it attainable? Is it achievable? Is it something that has existed in the past? And is it something that can exist in the future? And also, you know, like the propaganda that's put out by the right wingers saying that, oh, if you're talking about equality, it means we're all going to have the same haircut, all going to drive the same cars, all going to live in the same apartment, wear the same clothing. That's obviously propaganda. So we would like to, for you to uh, elaborate on that. What is true equality? What is a healthy sense of equality as opposed to what they say? You know, we're all on the same phone, same car, same books, you know. Well, Real quick, before 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 you get into it, uh, and I, I told Richard that uh, some other, other folks from the show are going to be joining us. And he was like, hold on, other people? You're not going to put me in a debate with some conservative, are you? And he's like, I'm tired, tired of those arguments. So it's like, I... I yeah, I, I commiserate with you that I'm sure you've been hit with these arguments and these flagrant reactions so often, so much that so in, in my work, there's nothing that is more controversial that I have to say, which, you know, it, we'll, we'll get more into what we're advocating and what we're talking about in the, the science and the reality that we explore. But we want things to be more equal. And that is it, it, it blows people's minds that that is even possible. They're more OK with telling them the, the reality that five people have more wealth than 50% of the entire United States than to suggest we could make things more equal. Yes, I, I think this, the, this silly idea that's often trotted out that by inequality we mean everyone, uh, by greater equality we mean everyone being the same. Um, I, I, what I say is that uh, inequality prevents us really getting to know each other properly. That you know the personality, the real characteristics of your close friends, the people you know well. And of course, we choose our friends from amongst our near equals. Um, people very distant up the hierarchy or way down, uh, we don't know. Um, and we see them just... <laughs> in a way, for their position in society. Um, so if you really want to get to know people's individuality, their personality, the differences between us, you need those close relationships. You need the equality. It makes the differences more visible to each other. Um, so I, I think it's, it's completely the opposite way around from uh, the way people sometimes uh, say, uh, when it comes to how you improve, uh, uh, how you reduce the inequality, um, you mentioned unions, Zach. Um, and if you look at the whole of the um, 20th century, in most of the developed countries, you get rather the same pattern, that inequality is high early on in the 20th century. Um, and it it starts to come down uh, from somewhere in the 1930s, and it goes on coming down uh, till usually sometime in the 1970s, the late 1970s, and then it goes back up again uh, till we've now reached levels of inequality last seen in the 1920s. All that progress uh, of reducing class, of becoming a more social uh, society has been lost. Uh, we've become more antisocial because of it. Um, and if you look at that curve of declining inequality and then the, the modern rise, uh, exactly the opposite to that is the membership of trade unions. 
uh, which is hmm. uh, the mirror, mirror images of each other. Um, it's quite extraordinary hmm. how those two curves relate to each other. And I think what it's a reflection of is the power of the whole labor movement of social democratic politics, also the fear of communism. I think the fear of communism was quite good for capitalism. It made it more humane. Uh, capitalist countries began to develop welfare states and so on. Um, <clears throat> but as soon as that threat has gone, then you get with, with uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, uh, the neoliberal economics, the free market fundamentalism takes off. Um, and it's that that's done the damage. I don't think that I, unions are strengthening again. Um, I think it's going to be very hard to rebuild them to the strength that they had. Um, but I think the link that I mentioned before with environmental issues is absolutely fun, fundamental. We are not going to move towards sustainability without reducing inequality because of the consumption of the rich. And I'm uh, not going to take uh, limitations on my consumption. Uh, when I say I, I mean people are going to feel that generally. If those rich people are allowed to go on having their private jets and yachts and so on, uh, it's, you, those sorts of environmental policies can only be uh, pursued effectively if people think they're fair. And they're not fair until something has been done about the really big um, uh, problems at the top. I just want to say something, Zach, I'll let it run back to you. Uh, you mentioned a great thing about the like the bell curve of trade unions, you know, uh, inequality going down, trade unions going up, and then, you know, the radicalism of the fanatic direction of the market, which drives the trade unions down as inequality increases. Um, and I would say that, like, I would add on to that, that it literally, it really is a an expression of the system intention of market capitalism that, like you said, all that progress that we made was lost because it always comes into these cycles where we make some progress, we make some headway in increasing equality among people, having stronger unions, having a government that's more accountable to the people like, you know, in the, in the 1960s, 50s in, in America and how all that was destroyed and hijacked by, by corporate interest because... I would argue it's not the fault of corrupt people or corporations, but that rather is system intention. That is at the very root orientation of capitalism is a desire for exploitation, is a desire for looking at things as separate, as not you know community oriented, and looking at hey, look, you know, every person for themselves, every dog fights for their own well-being and for their own domination, and that's how we should keep it. Any government intervention is tyranny, and, and you know we can't help the poor. The hope the poor have to help themselves. And like you said, all this fear of communism, which, you know, myself and Zach, we're not communists, but it's just ridiculous. We live in the 21st century. Why do we have to go by all these isms of these labels? Why can't we in the 21st century simply just get together, put our brightest minds together and conceive of a society that can actually arrive at solutions and provide a better life to people without all these isms and all these clinging to notions of the past? Um, and so, you know, before I end with this part, I just want to say that, like, we have the technology, we have the resources to provide a high standard of, standard of living for all people without the need to have them at each other's throats, competing for jobs, competing for resources and all that nonsense. And so, yeah, you know, going back to what you said, literally inequality makes people mean. It makes them less caring. 
when it comes to environmentalism. Consumerism ramps up. That's why in your book, I love that part. I read this chapter, which is incredible. You talked about how in the United Kingdom, and especially in the United States, people want to buy bigger cars, bigger houses, bigger appliances, just bigger is better because they want to make a status uh, statement that I'm strong, you know, and because they don't trust each other, right? Having a bigger car makes you feel safer, you know, as opposed to creating stronger communities. And so that's why I think in the more in the more independent, uh, obsessed countries like the United States, individualism is so much more important to them than community relationships and, and things of that nature. So, yeah, you know, it, it all, again, it comes, I think it comes down to the system intention. Market capitalism at its very root is unsustainable in my view. And it should not be a radical thing to say that in, in this day and age. I mean, looking at the world around us, you know, it's, it's quite clear that the system's not, we're not going to have any solutions through the system. And, I think any positive, my friend asked me the other day, what are some positive trends that you're looking at? I said, well, the, the only po- one of the only positive trends I see in the world is the rising of social movements that are outside of the market, that are external from the market system, that are putting pressure on the market or trying to create their own alternatives that will ev- eventually take the growth out of the market system and starve the beast, so to say. So, you know, the, the one hope I have is that it's not really with politics anymore, with governments or corporations. It really comes down to... Uh, People creating their own social movements and grassroots change from the from the ground up, because really, you know, we've, we've seen, like you said, historical mm-hmm. examples of how progress and regression, progress, regression, because people rely on the market too much. Yes, I think I mean, one of the things we should have mentioned and haven't is the power of, of international corporations. They run circles around governments. They pretty well dictate policy in, in all sorts of areas. Um, and our culture is manipulated by those big corporations. Uh, they infiltrate all the regulatory uh, groups set up to um, maintain standards and so on. Uh, I, I think those are the powers we have to that we face in the long term. Both beautiful, beautiful points. Um, I wanted to make a, a point earlier about like how the rich, even the rich, are harmed by this materialistic, acquisitive sort of culture. So it's like the richest people in the world, the billionaires, they could have 100 cars and a plane that will take them anywhere on earth, but they can only actually access a very small percentage of that world because they can't walk around with their fancy clothes and their, you know, $200,000 watch on their wrist in, in the world of, of the barrios where the best parties I've ever been to are in Colombia, where all the poor people are, because one, they are legitimately in danger of people taking what they have because they don't have enough to live. And this person's wearing, you know, more than an entire village has, or will have an entire year on their wrist. And, you know, they've cut themselves off from humanity. And Andre 3000, one of my favorite uh, musicians, was talking about the other day that fame is brutal, that it's alienating, it's unnatural. It is not natural to be so separated and cut off from your fellow humanity. And you're not able to trust. You have all these people around you that want what you have. You have to put up all these barriers and walls and physical fences and chains and security and police and prisons. And it's this destabilizing force that comes out of this disorder, of this swelling tumor that gets bigger and bigger and bigger, that gets us further from us. And so we were talking today at the little beautiful egalitarian village that I live at right now, where everyone is more or less very equal and everyone participates in conversation about what we're going to do 
how we're going to do it, how we buy groceries. We're truly living in an attempt in an experimental way to be equal, to live without money, to go beyond these structures, to take them out of our own brains and not say, oh, we need some temporary committee or whatever. We don't need that. We can be equal. We were talking about an access economy where you know, if we had a system that wasn't based on I am owning and possessing all these things, but we have a, a, a library sort of economy where things are out there in the world for people to access as they need them, we're talking about yachts. We're talking about, first of all, basing our economy and our decision-making on needs, not on wants, not on whimsy, not on the you know materialistic way that you can flex how you're better than other people by having more stuff than them, but based on what we need. And we know what humans need by and large. It fluctuates. But we were like, okay, what if someone says they need a yacht? Well, in an access economy, if the people came together and said, okay, we'd like a yacht, that would be best good for our mental health and all that, you could have a really nice boat that you, you can access as you need it, but that boat sits for 90% of its life if you're not using it. My dad has a boat and we, we were at this garage and it was just full of boats in, in like storage that someone is using one time every year. For one day, and then they put it in there. When we could be all accessing these things, we could all be richer. And if all people had access to education, good health, if if we generally raise the bottom up, duh, rich people, you're going to live in a world with less stupidity, with less stress, with less conflict. Your own well-being is going to improve because those people in poverty, unnaturally, are going to be getting an education and working to innovate and create a better world for us all. So ending inequality, diminishing, minimizing, whatever you want to say, creating equality, which is what we're supposed to care about here in the West, right, is better yeah. for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I want to also add on what you said. Um, what you are actually in, the experimental um, social thing that you're in, Zach, what he's in that little village is actually a very good um, example of an alternative way of living and how – when people get together and have more equality, resources are actually used more efficiently and there's less waste. And like you said, right, having 100 yachts sit somewhere for 90% of their lifespan not be used. Well, you know, even when it comes down to cars, when it comes down to yachts and boats, we can reduce the needs for cars and, y and yachts and boats as we become a more sharing and access-based society versus a neurotic one that's based on, you know, private property and what Jacques Fresco said a long time ago, which is an incredible point. Imagine all the massive millions of tons of metal waste used to create bars and barricades and, and you know and gates around these uh, communities where the rich the rich live who want to feel protected. If you create a more egalitarian society, you don't need all these uh, these artificial forms of protection, which are not even real protection. You know, so um, the more equality we create, the more strength we create, and and we we waste much less resources when we have a society based on access and with the improvement of our technology we can actually get there where you know um you have like you can you know like i made a video about this you can have an app on your phone like you know like uber but you 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 share you want you say you want to go somewhere an automatically driven car right like by google satellite picks you up drops you off where you need to go and that car immediately is used to, to drive somebody else somewhere else yes, yes. no driver needed no need to store cars mm -hmm. in your garage you know Yes, please go ahead. Yeah, entirely, exactly. Yeah, and and so like, from a resource efficiency standpoint, from a sustainability standpoint, from a humanitarian standpoint, all these factors can be improved upon when we create more equality, and we you know, we make it very obviously clear that we want to move away 
from all these old notions of domination, hierarchy, competition, private property, to collaboration, egalitarianism, sharing, access, which I think I think the mentality of access is a, is a mentality of maturity. The mentality of trying to hoard things is a mentality of immaturity. And so, you know, yeah, yeah Zach. Uh, just a question for Richard. So Richard, um, in your experience or your exploration of inequality, I'm curious on the other side of that, of experiences of equality and of other structures like trade unionism or uh, cooperativism, other structures that can get us to a more equal society. Um, well, I, I, I do think that the environmental thing is a, a live or die issue. Um, you know, even the UN is now talking about the possibility that we'll get to three degrees. Um, <clears throat> and I think that uh, there were, no, I shouldn't really quote the figure because I'm not, my memory gets poorer, but I think in uh, 2021, there were something like 22 uh, environmental uh, emergencies in the states that call uh, that cost over a billion dollars um, and those will be increasing and becoming more common everywhere and you know our carbon emissions the world carbon emissions are still going up um, <clears throat> and I, I, in what you've been saying about a sharing economy um, I think it's important to remember how much the sort of status concerns people have contribute to consumption. And, you know, when people start feeling their, their car looks a bit dated or shabby, and actually it functions perfectly all right, but they buy a new one because they want that image of themselves. I remember speaking to people who unemployed, hardly got any money at all. And yet they spent vast sums on a, a new, really upmarket phone. They said the girls don't talk to you unless you've got the right stuff. Um, and uh, you might have a, uh, and I get my, my shirt sleeves start to fray and you think you've got to have a new shirt. Uh, as if, you know, <laughs> frayed shirt sleeves mattered at all. They matter only because people worry what, it looked like what others will think of them. So, uh, you know, the, these studies which really show that if you live in a more unequal place, you do spend more money on sort of con status consumer goods. Uh, and so that is uh, uh, also a really powerful form of waste that we've got to deal with. Um, <clears throat> I, I think the only thing that's going to change it is we've got to have really confiscatory taxes on the, the rich. Um, you know, I talk about payback taxes for the greed of the rich. Um, and unless we do that, uh, we're not going to get sustainability and uh, we're going to get, well, already uh, estimates suggest that perhaps 100,000 people a year are dying around the world because of climate change uh, and huge numbers of course having to leave their home because the droughts mean that their agriculture no longer works all their cattle have died um, or or uh, been disastrous floods 
Um, and of course, uh, the political uh, repercussions uh, of uh, larger flows of migrants and so on have dominated politics in one country after another. The dislike of migrants, um, <clears throat> refugees and so on, uh, most of which are caused by uh, these issues of, of um, climate change and um, forcing people to move. So I think that's what where we're at. And I think, as I say, we really have to move as it's an emergency towards really confiscatory taxes on the rich. It is they who are uh, causing such a disproportionate amount of the carbon emissions that are destroying the environment. And they also have such a huge influence on policy and actually the direction of society. You know, just looking at how in the United States, uh, the poor people, they look up so much to billionaires. They're like, I want to be a billionaire. I mean, people wear these offensive shirts. The Billionaire Boys Club, like, what is that supposed to mean? You want to be the, a big hoarder? You want to you want to be a big waster? You want to be an exploiter? That's, is that what you strive to be? And um, and how, like, you know, we can see that this is actually not just an issue of the rich. It's a cultural issue and how the culture itse itself gravitates towards wealth cons consolidation. And it gravitates tor towards more perpetual uh, perpetuation of inequality. And, you know, how in your work you talk about, you talk about, the dynamics of inequality and how it affects, affects the relationship of people within that country. But we also have a global issue, right? A global crisis where wealthy nations exploit poor nations. So like you said, those farmers living on the, on the shore have to move inward or move to other areas. And there's going to be a massive refugee crisis as climate change uh, accelerates. And a big part of this is because the global north has been exploiting the global south for decades and, and looking at them like they're just dispensable to expose, you know, and globalization, right? Like one of the major points that I'm really interested in talking about, like a big policy that can actually reduce inequality and reduce environmental harm and climate change is bringing back the uh, bringing back localization of production of goods and services and food for all countries because we have the technology to do that you can even you can grow bananas in, in in norway during the winter by using the right kind of technology indoor agriculture you know but the way the market obsesses over cost saving and cost efficiency it does not care about those things it cares first about profits and cutting costs and what is still one of the best ways to cut uh, cut costs and increase profits is hey outsource your labor if you want to grow, if you want strawberries for people in California, have people in Mexico do it and, and just destroy their farmlands by keep doing the same traditional um, agricultural methods of spraying pesticide on the land because it's cheaper land. You want to buy cheaper land and cheaper labor instead of bringing it back to California and having people in California work on that and having sophisticated systems of sustainable agriculture like permaculture and in the, in, indoor vertical farms, hydroponics, aquaponics. There's so many incredible methods. Uh, that can really improve our, our state of well-being, improve the environment, and most importantly, reduce inequality. Because globalization, the the most important thing it does, it puts more pocket into the into the it puts more money into the pockets of the wealthy. And if we want if we want to really change things, it doesn't just come down to, in my view, just down to taxes. It all comes down to the, it also comes down to societal and economic orientation, moving away from this obsession with profits and cutting costs, and moving towards more. You know, how about public health? How about environmental well-being? 
which will actually, interestingly, more environmental well-being, more public health equates to less profits. It equates to less economic growth. So that right there should be a telling factor of our main enemy is the economy itself. But yeah, Zach, you want to add to that? Well, yeah, I was going to say that a great point about the inequality uh, between nations is is ultimately driving us to world war, you know, as well. And to, you know, the United States has bullied the global South for so long that it should be no surprise that uh, they're rushing to join up with the BRICS nations. Um, yeah, I, I do. I want to kind of uh, circle things back a little bit to how we bring about this change. And uh, Richard, the sort of movement that we are working to build and weave together with all these other movements and and make this a through line, make solving inequality a really crucial uh, step, a really crucial value for all of us to focus on. So we we are very cynical with the state of political change and that inequality is so great and so uh, heavy and so prohibitive that it seems really almost impossible for our generation, especially to believe that a political change could come and, and even bring back the tax rate to what it was in 1970. So getting Mark Zuckerberg to pay his taxes is going to require some sort of revolution. And, and I, I mean revolution in terms of a, of a broad, even like global change in consciousness that pushes people to, to form alternative systems, to build and model um, other ways of organizing ourselves that break that dependence. So um, what advice could you give us as somebody who's really studied this for how to um, look at examples and alternatives and structures that produce equality, that practice and even grow it? I think we shouldn't be uh, too depressed by the situation, although I agree that there are, it's hard to see signs of hope. But great upheavals have happened so unexpectedly again and again. And for my generation, it was the near revolution in France in 1968. Enormous upheavals, long general strikes, General de Gaulle, the president, actually fled from Paris, fearing that uh, he might get uh, uh, captured or deposed or something. Um, and I think we also have to recognize that while the rich think that their wealth makes them more respected and looked up to, uh, they'll go on doing it. But if uh, they start to feel they'll be looked down on, regarded as greedy and antisocial. Uh, that may make some difference. You get still occasional groups of uh, the super rich who um, are actually asking for higher tax uh, on their incomes. Um, and when Roosevelt introduced the New Deal, which uh, redistributed income quite uh, substantially, he sold it to the rich by saying, uh, we must uh, reform in order to preserve. Uh, they were afraid that uh, the Great Depression looked like the collapse of capitalism that Marxism had always predicted. Uh, so I think we must uh, recognize that the rich won't respond unless they're at least a bit fearful 
of what will happen if they don't. <laughs> uh, there was a nice piece of graffiti uh, and a, I think a poster, and I can't remember what demonstration. And it said, uh, the, ri uh, the world is not just dying, it's being killed. And the people responsible have names and addresses. I think we have to take that sort of approach. I remember in the... I actually, <laughs> I, <laughs> that was unexpected, but beautiful. I, no, it was actually yeah, beautiful. In, in the banking that. crisis, one of the bankers in Britain who made a particular fool of himself in the inquiries after, after <laughs> the banking crisis, the, the crisis of 2007 and 2008, um, <clears throat> his car, which I don't know what it was, but, you know, something very expensive, maybe a Rolls Royce, was damaged. Um, and uh, people... Uh, got into his garden and they carved a huge pound sign on the lawn, you know, taking up the curtain turf. Um, and I'm sure that <laughs> things like that make people start to think maybe they're getting closer. I have to start to think about this, not just feel I'm looked up to um, and admired for my <laughs> wealth. Zach. Oh, yeah. I want to also, before you, you go, Zach, you made a great point about like, listen, it's not all petals and roses over here. We're trying to have a revolution and change society. Sometimes you might need a little bit of force to force the hand of the wealthy. And as much as we want to advocate for an ideological, a social, a cultural revolution, sometimes when the, the powerful, you know, our demands are simply not heard by them. Sometimes we might have to take action and make them make them respect our, our viewpoints and make them demand them to respect and hear us out. And so, yeah, you know. Yeah, I just wanted to say, Richard, that we're not um, we're not depressed or doomed. We're, we're actually very action oriented. I'm very cynical about the existing systems, about the mechanisms in society that are supposed to be there to protect us, that we're never really designed for that. Um, I'm very, very cynical about that. But the more that I step outside of that and explore this vibrant, beautiful world of alternatives outside the system of people designing and building and exploring and creating new systems that reject these premises, that say we don't have to organize our society in a pyramid. And I'm very optimistic in that because there is an equal and opposite and greater reaction being formed all over the world that I should also like to say that that as this violence against us is primarily structural, the more the most death in the world that is caused is by the inequalities, is by the health effects of this, this distance between us, this lack of money, this, this psychic scourge that is not enough, not enough, not enough, and the poverty and the deprivation, that our resistance and the, the, the violence, the way that we strike back is in new structures, is in creating new structures that are destructive to the corporation, not the glass window front of the Starbucks that is insured, but the actual structure of that corporation that is the, the feeling that we need it, that there isn't an alternative. So we're working to build alternatives and to scale out these new forms and social structures that are circular in nature, that are e equal by design, that incorporate all of these different solutions out there to chain them together in the way that all the problems are connected. We want to connect the solutions into a system a new system, a system of systems, a movement of movements. And that, to me, is, is cause for celebration because it's happening. What you say 
reflect very much what I've heard um, people in other organizations saying, talking about uh, a, a popular bottom-up, creating another way of living. Yeah, uh, like like you mentioned, Zach, that's great because, yes, uh, please understand that me and Zach are like-minded in that, in that mentality that we're not optimists, we're not pessimists, we're realists. And when we look at the trajectory of capitalism and where it's headed, uh, it seems very unlikely that we can actually have a a revolution from within the system. You know, change and pressure must be applied towards the system from people outside of it, creating alternatives and lessen our dependence on this highly unsustainable and exploitative system to help us arrive at a better uh, a better um, alternative future. And I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar with Buckminster Fuller, his famous statement saying that in order to change the existing reality, you must create an alternative one that makes the, the existing one obsolete. We can't go about it changing it while while working within the system. We have to change. We have to create an alternative that makes the existing one obsolete. Yes. Well, so Richard, uh, I think we're probably running out on running up on time here. Um, it's yeah. been really great talking to you, and I, we'd love to have you on the show again. Um, a couple couple of points here before we go, though. I, I'd love um, just a list of some organizations and movements and projects that um, give you optimism, that, that showcase these other things? Um, well, because of my age, I'm less active, so I don't go to meetings and so on. I listen to things online, uh, but most of my time is spent trying to write another book. But um, uh, the, um, what does it call itself, the majority uh, something, environmental campaign um uh no it's it, it, i would have had to have prepared for that um uh question but uh <laughs> I, three organizations i've had some contact with recently um seem to me to be talking the way you just did about creating alternative structures um a man called, can you can you tell us about the the book you're writing? Um, I was I was actually going to ask you again what what have you been uh, working on uh, lately? Of, it's, so that's that's great. It, it's a way of reducing the the stranglehold of um, the market economy on us. Um, I said earlier that I felt that it was almost impossible to um, stop economic growth if everyone is still trying to maximize their income and every company is trying to maximize profits and sales um, you know that's not that's not a good starting point for sus to get to sustainability but the problem is people think that's human nature to want to maximize everything um, and yet people have to understand that what we think is human nature uh, is a reflection of our social structure. It's because we have market capitalism, uh, which is driven by and, and works on self-interest, that we see ourselves as self-interested. But if you look at a, a hunting and gathering society with a quite different structure, uh, they see themselves totally differently. Every society imagines that their society is the way it is because that's the way human nature is. So people in capitalist societies think that human beings are basically capitalist. We've got to understand that we've, we've got the 
that causation the wrong way round. We think of ourselves as self-interested because we live in a capitalist society. We don't live in a capitalist society because we're self-interested. Um, and that starts to mean you can begin to see your way out of it. And one of the things in the book of, of, Dave, of um, Graeber and Wengro, he, they talk not only about the, the gift exchange and food sharing and so on in, in uh, many egalitarian hunting and gathering societies and uh, some of uh, the early agricultural societies, um, but also uh, they talk about how it's the normal way of human interaction, the give and take, the sharing. It exists in every family. You know, we don't have accounting and money within families. It also exists within work, between work colleagues. Um, what uh, uh, Graeber says is, you know, when a workman says to another, hand me the wrench, please, the bloke doesn't, he just hands it over. He doesn't say, what's in it for me if I do? Um, and Graeber actually says that this, and he calls it a basic communism. Um, and he each, calls it everyday communism. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think we have to recognize that as the basic way humans interact. I talked about monkeys earlier, and of course the social cement between monkeys is grooming, um, is touch. And touch also means a lot to human beings, but the c social cement between human beings is the little kindnesses we do for each other all the time, the things we give each other, the way we help each other. It's that that creates a social bond. And market capitalism uh, and money destroy all that. Um, so uh, that... Yes, social capital. Yes, and destroy the sense of purpose in our work because the work is turned into something that's self-interested. And if you start to look at um, uh, things like um, voluntary work, uh, almost half of all Americans do some voluntary work. Um, and they do it within this capitalist economy that tells them they're all self-interested. And when you start trying to think, why do people do voluntary work there and there, but not here? And uh, the difference, it's not about the kind of work. People will do voluntary work on very boring things like stuffing envelopes. Or out on the North York Moors here, there's been a lot of heavy stone breaking, uh, making better paths with rocks across the boggy parts. And, you know, that's almost the work that prisoners in the States used to do. And yet it's done voluntarily. Uh, and when you ask people why they do voluntary work, they say, I wanted to give something back. Uh, and that's very like the sense of indebtedness that uh, leads to reciprocity uh, in hunting and gathering societies. And so that there are other basic motives there under the surface, um, but what destroys it, and I give a lot of, of lectures, uh, I do most of them for free. Uh, I, 
when I charge is when it's a profit-making organization. I'm not going to give voluntary work to a profit-making organization. They're going to have to pay me. Um, and you, there are studies, for instance, of, of blood donors uh, in Britain uh, with the National Health Service where blood is, has always been just given to patients, like the treatment being free. Uh, people were willing to give their blood without payment. In the States, for quite a long time, uh, blood was bought um, because it was sold to patients. Uh, and again and again, you see the difference really between uh, working voluntarily and working uh, in wage labor structures uh, is the profit motive, uh, is those, uh, uh, that structure of the organization. But as soon as it becomes a social activity, not a commercial activity, we're willing to give our time. It feels purposeful. It's a valuable contribution we want to make to the community. And yet capitalism, private enterprise destroys that, those important social feelings that make us feel purposeful and connected to the society we live in. I was just going to say, I can't wait to read this book. Uh, that we're, we're so... Um... We're digging in the same sandbox, Richard, that this is what we explore, you know, every single episode of this, sh this show, we are exploring this reality of what money does to us, of what this con coercive control-based society that's based on these very arbitrary hierarchies and false myths of who we are and where we came from and where we're going that keep us going. I, I think the quick little factoid, I think Michelle Bowens will say, said this in a video, that um, people working for most companies is like one in five or one in 10 that would do the job they're doing if they weren't getting paid. Whereas people who were volunteering, duh, 100% of them would. So it's mm. like, we have the motivation. And we, we did a great uh, video on um, self-determination theory at their conference um, early last, last summer. And, you know, that's a brilliant field of study that if you, if you haven't um, dipped into it much, I think you really would, it would illuminate your work in so many ways because they've been studying the truth of motivation of what really motivates people and applying it to the family, to sports, to school, to all walks of life. And it's so, uh, it's so effective that one of the criticisms against it is like, oh, this has never been falsified. Because it's, it's just how humans work. When you deprive people of their intrinsic motivation and you make them work for a token or you punish them, you, you're, you're dulling their existence. Yeah. You're taking the fun out of life. There was an experiment that uh, they gave kids toys to play with. They said, kids, play with these toys. Just play with the toys. Have fun. And then there was another one where they gave kids toys and said, we're a toy company. We want you to test a certain number of toys. For every toy you, you test, we're going to give you a dollar. And the kids got bored. They got bored playing yes. with toys. I've I mean, it's just it's just amazing like how antithetical. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would love to know what what uh, more. Just I'm I'm all years. I mean, I, I as as if you have more time, I would love to hear more of the research you're doing because the you know the work you did it did with this for the spirit level. I mean, it's 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 foundational work that we stand on. But it's so cool to hear that you're continuing with it and bringing that more and more into these well, more uh, subtle dynamics of how this Kate structure affects our a mind. More, uh, a more recent book than the spirit level called the inner level, um, which deals with the more the psychological side of inequality, how it really gets to us. 
why it's related to mental illness and stuff. Um, you might like to see that too. Yeah, and and uh, the points you made regarding incentive structures, it's so relevant because there's a lot of research that me and Zach have looked at that shows that, you know, we humans feel more reward, more rewarded, not, you know, from external uh, rewards, but rather from the intrinsic motivation to want to help others and feel like we're making an impact and making a difference mm-hmm. in other people's lives. And so, like you said, even in a capitalist society, which tries to drive selfishness and individualism so much forth, we still have people who contribute so much of their time and lives towards helping others for free. You can imagine how much better it would be if we didn't have a society that obsessed over profits and money and differential advantage and a society that was actually driven driven on. The campaigning that you two and I am involved in is actually voluntary work. And it, 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 yeah. it relates us to society. Our purpose is beyond us, outside us. Um, uh, and it does give a sense of, of purpose and fulfillment and so on. And that's what all work should do. Absolutely. And that's why society, uh, companies that try to give their workers more freedom in terms of what hours they want to come in and just reward them based on accomplishing a task as opposed to getting paid hourly, they showed better uh, performance. Because those mm-hmm. workers were not so obsessed with getting paid by the hour. They were just care. They cared more about tapping into that intrinsic uh, awareness of wanting to solve a problem using creativity and, and problem solving skills, as opposed to this yeah. corporate hierarchy where you got to punch in nine to five, you know, every single day. Yeah, I think that the this is such a powerful idea of of inequality that it, it's, it pervades everything. I mean, it, it's like I think Jordan Peterson or someone said, like hierarchy and inequality is embedded in the fabric of of space and time. You know, like like it seems so impossible to avoid when it's just such a disorder. It's just such a sad thing that we're so distant from each other that we can't connect and recognize that yes, we're all different. But no, Zach, you're wrong. Because lobsters had hierarchy. Lobsters had hierarchy, <laughs> so we have to have hierarchy. <laughs> but it's that we've 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 graded society on this steepness based on one very particular game, and it had, that game has nothing to do really with with uh, true merit, true greatness. And if we give people access to the needs to their to meet their needs, really to meet their needs, mm. we're going to see such an explosive increase in the differences between people. We have this society where everybody's so uh, afraid of being judged, of being seen as different, that they suppress themselves. They hide themselves in a suit and tie or in a box, or they hide away every aspect of themselves until they get home. And then they, I don't know, blast it out in weird forms and pornography and shooting people. And it just becomes a disease. Our own individuality becomes a disease because we suppress it, because we can't feel like we can be ourselves, because it's so competitive and we had to, oh, uh, so-and-so is rich and he has five cars or he dresses like this, so I need to as well to get ahead. And this is just, we're, we're doing violence to our own individuality and the differences between us, the yeah. inequalities. One of the, one of the statistics you gave that is so powerful is that the, the, the ability for people to work their way out of poverty goes down in more unequal societies. Where like there's that great clip that Arjun you sent me of um, 
that that dude from uh, Shark Tank, and and he's on this mm, TV show, mm. and she on a new show, and she's like, I, she's I celebrate capitalism. That's great news, she, you know. She she goes, she's like, she's like, she's like. Uh, Oxfam report says that the one percent of the population has more wealth than ninety nine percent, and and he says he's like, I I think it's great. It gives everybody the motivation to pull themselves up. <laughs> Fantastic is what he's like. It gives an example of all the poor to look up to the rich and want to be like us, you know. And, and the lady was mm-hmm. like. Those people don't have food. Don't, they don't have socks to wear. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> she was just like <laughs> ridiculing him, yeah. you know? Yeah, I, I'll just uh, toss it back to you, Richard. Um, I'll just say, first of all, you're welcome back on the show anytime. Anytime you want to talk about something, would love for you to come out when your book comes out, for you to come and talk about it. Uh, we love nerding out about all this stuff. Let, let me um, say, but I, I, we, we like to... Oh, go ahead. The book won't be out for... Uh, probably a year or two, I have to finish writing it and then it goes a long time through the publisher. Sorry, I interrupted you. Well, if, if, you, if you feel a burning desire to come and share some of the insights that have come through the book before the book comes out, you have this show as uh, Mikasa Sukasa. <laughs> um, but yeah, we usually like to leave, leave the audience on a rousing, inspiring uh, sermon from our esteemed guests, from the great, <laughs> the great Richard Wilkinson. Uh, I'm just kidding, but yeah, we, you put we, him on a pedestal. You put what, him on what, a pedestal, Zach. Stop doing that. He, he's there's there's differences between people in society. There's there's great people and there's weak people and there's there's people who lead and there's people who fall. I'm, I'm just kidding, but yeah, Richard. Um, just if you could give our listeners some some hope, you know, something to be optimistic about, or a message that you feel is imperative, or something that we're not listening to. Just what do you feel is really important for us to to understand in these trial, these trying, difficult, crazy, weird, and possibly wonderful times? Well, I used to think uh, that the societies which were doing worst uh, would be the first to change. Uh, that uh, because Britain's roads are clogged with traffic all over the place, we would be the first to have to tackle this problem. I think that. Uh, inequality has mm. created so many more problems. Um, but of course, it will be defended and it will be attacked. But suddenly, those forces will switch and things will change. As I said, the great political upheavals have almost always been uh, an enormous surprise. I remember a lecture on, on some revolutionary upheaval saying only five or ten years earlier the campaigners had been banging their heads against brick wall, feeling they got absolutely nowhere. And then just a bit later, the revolution. Um, And so I think change does come uh, often unexpectedly. Um, And I think the number of people like you, like ourselves, campaigning in these ways is growing all the time. Uh, When we wrote that spirit level book on inequality, nobody talked about inequality. Um, And uh, not long afterwards, there was the, um, um, sorry, I've forgotten the name of the protests on on inequality. but now occupy it, wall street or occupy yes, or and now it's seen as a fundamental problem most of the population putting it very high up on their list of priorities to deal with um so public opinion is changing um 
people are uh, are, are organizing unions are growing in strength again um, there will be change uh, and indeed there has to be change for the environmental reasons I was talking about you can't solve the environmental problem without solving the inequality problem they go hand in hand absolutely do you want to do something about all the issues we talk about here on our show Do you want to learn more, get involved, and help us help others break out of the cycle? Step one is to join the growing community of rebels and kind hearts sharing their knowledge and passion. Follow Moneyless Society on our social media pages and spread the message to people who need it. When you're ready, you can get involved by reaching out and becoming a Moneyless Society volunteer. We need every skill imaginable, large or small, if we're going to resist the powers destroying our planet. And even if you don't have time to volunteer, you can help us build the dream with donations of any size. We create all of this community and content because it is our passion, but we need resources to get it done. Monthly Patreon donors receive cool perks like early access to future episodes, and visitors to our website, moneylesssociety.com, can buy MOSO shirts and other merchandise that help spread awareness. We're glad you're here, and we hope that you'll keep learning and growing with us. The goal may seem far away, but we can get there together.